Hi, Damien Christoph here. And Marcus Pierce here. After you listen to this Wellness Couch podcast, make sure you strap on your early bird wellness cape and head over to thewellnesssummit.com and book your early bird tickets. Tickets are going like hotcakes and why wouldn't they be? Because two days of powerhouse wellness featuring the Up For A Chat girls, the new couch rock star, Kyle Brock, the natural nutritionist, Steph Lowe, our beautiful special guest, Nat Kringudis, quirky Joe Witten, Marcus Pierce, MP, our brother, the wellness guys, and more should not be missed. Get ready for some serious wellness, inspiration, education, extrapolation, information, fermentation, and so much more. Head to thewellnesssummit.com and book your tickets now. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Abnormal Psychologist, the show that shares everyday insights into getting the best out of your mind, body, and lifestyle. Now, please welcome your host, the abnormal psychologist herself, Carrie Thompson-Casey. Hello, and how are you going? And welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist with me, your host, Carrie Thompson-Casey, the show where we are giving you the how-to to get the best out of you. And today, I'm very excited to be talking to Tim Carey, who is an amazing clinical psychologist, a professor, and the director of the Centre for Rural and Remote Health, and he's also currently Vice President of the Australian Psychological Society. And he's, well, he's the Centre for Rural and Remote Health is out at Alice Springs. And he's very excitingly talking to me from his walking treadmill. So hello, Tim. Hi, Carrie. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. No, I am so excited to talk to you about all your amazing innovation. And that's one of the most exciting parts of the Abnormal Psychologist podcast is the different types of guests that I get to speak to, whether it's an everyday person who's um, doing amazing things um, or an everyday person who's doing everyday things that has, mm-hmm. has an important part to share with us. But you're doing some pretty extraordinary things in terms of um, developing different therapy modalities with other people. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your story and how you traveled along that pathway as a psychologist to be doing just the amazing things you're doing at the moment. So tell us your story. Okay, sure. Thanks. It's um, j- Just to begin with, I think the um, the Wellness Couch podcast is a, is a fantastic um, concept and I'm, I'm really delighted to be invited to contribute. And your idea about um, how to get the best out of you really touches on, I guess, what's been a priority of mine for a long time. So I started my professional career as a preschool teacher. Um, I then moved into special education where I did a a graduate diploma for the severely to profoundly multiply handicapped and then got very interested um, in that degree. A lot of our work was around applied behaviour analysis and behaviour management. So I got very interested in a bit more formally thinking about why people do the things they do and and how behaviour works and how we can kind of behave differently if we want to. And that kind of flowed on very neatly from my preschool teaching because my training there had been all about focusing on individuals and sort of observing where individuals are at and then helping them get to to a different place or a, a better place, a place with more, more skills and, and so on. So after my... Um, my work with behaviour management. Um, I started a PhD in clinical psychology um, and when I'd finished that I travelled to Scotland and my grandfather had come from Scotland so um, my wife and I wanted to sort of connect with family over there um, 
So I went over there for five years and worked in the National Health Service there um, in primary care as a, as a clinical psychologist. It was, it was a fantastic time. Um, it was a great opportunity to work in a different health system and, and kind of learn um, about the, the way different things work in a different country. Um, I also learned to correct my my misperception that Scottish people spoke English. Um, <laughs> I, I, I had no idea um, that, that it would be so difficult to understand Scots at, at some times, um, particularly when they were talking quickly with each other. And that made for some interesting um, clinical moments. I remember on one occasion in particular, uh, a man who'd separated from his wife um, was, was really upset ab about some of the, the changes to his life. And I thought he was telling me that, that one of the things that most upset him was that he, he couldn't um, ha spend as much time with his truck as he wanted to. And I did use my best clinical skills and did a whole lot of curious questioning around this idea <laughs> of I couldn't really understand why he was so um, torn up about not, not getting to see his truck as much as he could. And I finally... Um, discovered, the lights finally came on for me, that he was actually talking about his son. Um, but in the part of Scotland where where I lived and worked, um, people over there referred to young boys as lotties. Well, I thought he was saying lorry as in truck. Ah, uh, yes. saying melody as in my son. <laughs> so it was in Scotland that I, I learnt, um, the, really learnt the benefits of um, curious questioning and and finding out where where people are at more than anything and and where they where they want to go um I, I did a lot of amazing things in scotland and and one of the things that um seemed fairly simple at the time but um led to some some amazing things was just to to question the whole way that we go about delivering um psychological treatments and because the nhs um was a was a free service in the sense that people paid for it through their taxes but didn't actually pay for services at the time I could offer um, so an unlimited service so if I was at a, um, a GP practice uh, a couple of times a week I could tell people that they could come as often as they liked for as long as they liked and wow. I, I started to play around with um, and started to look at I did a big kind of literature search and I started to wonder where our ideas about you know, that you need 10 sessions or you need 12 weekly sessions or, or whatever. I wondered where they, where those ideas came from. And they really didn't come from anywhere. They were, they were kind of created through for administrative convenience or, or they were created so that uh, a manualised program of 12 weekly sessions could be neatly compared in a study to, um, to some drug treatments, for example. And, and so I found out that if you just let people come when they want to come, um, they don't come for any more sessions than they come when you're telling them how often they should attend. But what changes dramatically, or at least what changed over there, was the number of missed and cancelled appointments. And I guess it shouldn't seem too <laughs> outstanding in the 21st century that if you, if you let people make their own appointments, they're more inclined to turn up for them. But, but this was... Um, a, a real revelation in in Scotland. And when I first got to Scotland, there was a 15-month waiting list wow. to see psychologists uh, in the primary care service. So a couple of the first people I'd seen couldn't remember why they'd been referred, but Ugh. 
it had taken them so long to get referred that they were very keen to keep the appointment. <laughs> yes. so, so a big priority over there was to, and, and national, there were policy documents in the NHS talking about the importance of handing control back to patients for their health care and so on and so on. And um, as, as I'll talk about in a minute, control has been, the importance of control in people's lives, lives is a really um, big theme in the work that I do. So it was interesting to see the, the links there. Um, after five years in, in Scotland, we, we were lucky enough to, um, for the birth of our son to occur over there. We came back when he was about three months old and I got a job as the course convener of the postgraduate clinical psychology programs at the University of Canberra for a few years. And then this job in Alice Springs came up, um, well, a, a job at the Centre for Remote Health. And then last year I became the director. And it seemed like a wonderful opportunity to be able to work at a university and also um, give our son a, a, a country town experience when he was, when he was growing up. Um, so I've, I've come out here, I grew up in a country town myself so and so did my wife, so um, getting back to, to country living was, was terrific. Um, and I've, I've become really interested in um, providing the ways that we can improve access to services by, by making sure our, our services are as effective and efficient as we, as we can make them. Um, that was work that I started in Scotland where we also lived in, in sort of, we lived outside of cities in, in country areas. Um, and the, the whole idea of giving clients or patients or people who are accessing services, giving them the control over how much they have and how often they have it um, seems to be a really useful way to provide services. So that's kind of where I'm at now. Um, in, in rural and remote areas, I've also had the opportunity to start thinking more carefully about working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I've been extremely fortunate um, since coming out here to have some wonderful cultural mentors and cultural advisors and just to find out how um, how important cultural considerations are when when working with Aboriginal people. Um, it's been a real eye-opener for me. I didn't ever consider that I had a particularly sheltered upbringing, but I had no idea, for example, that you could walk around um, Australian towns and hear people speaking an Australian language that wasn't English. And I, I just love hearing people speaking some of the languages out here, like Arundel or Walpuri or um, Pitinjara yeah. or so on. It's, it's an amazing experience. Um, so, so that's been, been extremely fulfilling as well. And yet again, hearing um, and learning a little bit about um, Aboriginal people and what's important to them, it's been, it's confirmed again for me how important control is in people's lives. And I, I understand that there's a lot of complexity to the, the difficulties um, in, in things like closing the gap, for example. But a big part of close, the solution to closing the gap, I think, has to be finding ways for Aboriginal people to have more control over their, their destiny or the life they're living or um, how helping Aboriginal people find ways that they can be the best that they can be in whatever way that, that is for them. Um, so that's really the, um, 
I guess what gets me out of bed in the morning, what what keeps me going. I've developed a. I understand a, why it sounds absolutely fascinating. Well, it, it is it is really rewarding work, and it's. Um, I, I still work one day a week in the public mental health service, providing a, a psychology outpatient clinic because clinical work is really important to me. It's it's extremely humbling, I think, to have people come to see you and within a few minutes sometimes be telling you things that they've they've never told anyone else. And yes. to uh, it's a real privilege, I think, to Absolutely. to have the opportunity to help them kind of reorder things and look at things in different ways and to make new sense of their life and to be able to live um, differently and more contentedly and and so on. So, so yeah, that's that's really where I'm at now. Um, I do I do a lot of academic work like research and um, and writing journal articles and so on. But it's also very important for me to stay connected with with people who aren't in universities and in academic settings. So I write um, in blogs on like the Psychology Today website where I'm interested in communicating ideas from psychological principles but in ways that that people can use them to to live more of the life they want to live amazing yeah that's awesome and I think that's um, one of the hardest parts of being a psychologist is is being able to hear the story bit out but be able to communicate some of the strategies in a, a non-confronting way so it's not mm -hmm. um, it's not about oh here's my strategy you fit into it so that I can mm -hmm. send you off with this piece of homework. But um, but as you were sort of indicating before, by the sounds of it, is it's, that it's, it's hearing that person's story and getting a really good handle on where they're at mm -hmm. so that, um, that some of this, your experience and the strategies perhaps may work for that person. But, you know, I do also talk a lot about how it's important for them to go home and trial some of these, these strategies. But what I'm really curious about is some of the – um, sort of specific modalities of therapy um, and research that you've been doing in perceptual control theory and mm -hmm. how that might relate to the everyday person. So can you give us a bit of an explanation on that? Yeah, absolutely, Carrie. I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so perceptual control theory is a really, um, at one level, quite a robust, rigorous um, Kind of complicated theory to understand, but at another level, it's it's no more than um, making a cup of coffee the way we would like it to. So, so the the basic idea from perceptual control theory or PCT is that we we all have uh, ideas about the way we would like the world to be, our worlds that we're currently living in and experiencing, and at the same time, we also have experiences of the world and sometimes those experiences don't match up with the way we would like things to be and our behaviour, all of our behaviour, is an attempt to make the world that we're experiencing be the way that we want it to be. So it's a bit like um, at, at any point in time we have lots and lots of wants or goals in our head and we, we also have a sense of the way the world currently is and our behaviour is an attempt to make the way the world currently is be the way we want it to be in our in our heads. Um, so things like um, in in some settings, I've described PCT as the Goldilocks theory of life. Um, if you remember, Goldilocks went to the bear's cottage and she tried some 
porridge that was too hot and some was too cold and some was just right. Well, the idea is that we all have these just right states in our heads about all sorts of things. The the just right state of our relationship, the just right state of our career, the just right state of our appearance, um, the just right state of how fast we like our car to go on the road or how far behind the car in front we like to be. And all of our behaviour is about keeping those just right states the way we, the way we want them to be. Um, so that's the, like a, a very quick explanation of just behaviour generally. It gets very interesting when we start talking about psychological problems because the, the PCT idea is that underlying a lot of, a lot of behaviour that looks very different superficially are some common processes or common um, principles and ideas. And my interest very much has been about trying to focus on what, what the common things are underlying presentations that look very different. Um, and, and we know clinically, even when someone present or even when different people present with the same kinds of symptoms that we might categorise as depression, they often have very different stories about those symptoms and the lives they're living in the context they're in. So my approach is to focus much more on on the story or understanding what's going on behind the symptoms. And the idea from a, from a PCT perspective is that the most common cause of psychological distress or, or mental health disorders or whatever we want to call them is when two of our wants or goals or two of our just right states are kind of incompatible but we're trying to get them satisfied at the same time. So that's just a complicated way for talking about internal conflict. And it, it spills out all the time. In my, in my clinical work, people talk all the time in different ways about having this, this experience of conflict. So someone, for example, might want to pursue um, their career aspirations, but they might also want to be building strong family relationships. And sometimes what they have to do to, to build the career they want interferes with the, the family relationships that they want. So, so as they spend more time getting the family relationships to be the way they want them to be, that interferes with the, the career they want to have. And people are constantly left in a kind of a, um, a to-ing and fro-ing, backwards sort of stuck place. People, people describe being stuck a lot and it's, it's that sense of being in conflict that, that leads to feeling stuck. Um, I remember one chap I worked with described having having a thirst for life and a desire for oblivion. Now, imagine <laughs> yeah, bit, having both yeah. of those things in your head at the same time. It's it's just it, it really is hell. You know, there's there's no way you can you can have a, a thirst for you can satisfy a thirst for life and also a desire for oblivion at at the same time. So um, would it like, um, you know, even someone like myself, you know, you know, feeling like there's just more should we be doing across different areas of our life, but at the same time wishing dreadfully to have a couple of days off. Ah, absolutely, yeah. Um, I think yeah, that yeah. happens a lot with women um, in particular who, who have a lot of roles that they might be balancing is that feeling they need to be on top of all these different roles but feeling completely depleted and exhausted at the same time and, and feeling, mm -hmm. no, I've just got to do one more thing and, oh, I just wish I could sit down for an hour. So, Absolutely, absolutely. And I guess for me the, the, the real um, take-home message for, for people is that PCT introduces this idea of relativity to 
um, to the way that we understand stress and distress and, and problems and turmoil and so on. So that the idea from a PCT perspective is one, one idea or thought or goal never in and of itself leads to despair or distress. So even thinking... Um, you know, even thinking something like life is life is hopeless and I'll I'll never find um, contentment and happiness. That that in and of itself, if I was part of a you know a philosophical group who saw the world as being a tiny insignificant part of a a much bigger story where we were all just kind of here for a little while and then we'd disappear into nothingness. Having having a thought like I'll never be happy and find contentment and and so on might be entirely appropriate in that in that kind of context with with those set of beliefs. the The idea from a PCT perspective is that people only ever get distressed or, or torn up when there are two things competing with each other, and so it can be as simple as wanting recognizing that. Um, you know, my relationship's just fallen apart and, and that person was the one I, I kind of thought was going to be, um, you know... The, the life partner or the, Yeah, forever. the life partner, my soulmate, yeah. my kindred spirit and, and they've, um, they've gone and now I can't, see, um, I can't see anyone else taking their place. Um, from a PCT perspective, the, the, the distress would come about not just from that person having gone but some, some other idea about wanting the person still to be there. Um, and I, I've worked with lots of people who will say things like a relationship's just fallen apart and they'll say, you know, something to me like, I just can't seem to move on. And from a therapeutic perspective based on the principles of perceptual control theory, I'll often ask a question like something really simple like, do you want to move on? And that might seem like a really dumb question to ask in the context of someone just having said to you, I, I can't move on with my life. But when I ask, do you want to move on, it's amazing the, the answers that people will give. And often they'll say, well, yes and no. Like, I, I, I know I, I have to get on with things to, to be the person I want to be, but, but that person was such an important part of my life and we had such lovely times together. The memories are so wonderful. I just don't want to let go of that. So... So again, the, the example from a PCT perspective is not that the, the distress isn't just caused by the person leaving, although that's dreadful enough, but there's a, in, in the head of the distressed person, there's a, a state of both wanting to let go and not wanting to let go at the same time that, that leads to the, the kind of the torment and anguish. So where does the resolution come from? So is it, it acknowledging that there is two competing wants or goals? Where in is there a sort of a clear resolution process? Like I'm sorry if I'm trying to make it sound like a very cookie cutter. No, no, no. That's that's that there is a um, a resolution process. Sometimes it's not it's not so clear, but it, it's kind of there anyway. So the the idea from a PCT perspective, and and it's not just PCT that talks about hierarchies of beliefs or thinking or goals or whatever but but PCT has a has an idea about um, goals and and attitudes and values and beliefs being in a in a hierarchy so some goals at some level um, are being set by goals at a higher level and I don't know whether you've ever had the experience of sometimes um, I don't know a 
a close friend might ask you what you think of their new outfit or their new hairdo or their new piece of art and you might not be as honest as you would be at other times. Um, and that's a, a good example of how a goal to maintain, say, relationship closeness operates by varying or changing slightly a goal for the amount of honesty um, you communicate. So the idea from, from a PCT perspective is that when we have these goals that are in conflict, we need to find the, the goals above them that are the, the higher level, more important, more highly valued goals that are, that are kind of setting um, the, the conflict at the moment. And that involves nothing more than, than having a conversation with people and, as you say, getting them, getting them firstly to recognise that there are two sides, so talking to them about the two sides of the conflict, because often when people are really um, distressed or despairing about something, they can... They really only just focus on the, the one thing. Or if people are trying really hard to, say, break a habit, like someone's trying really hard to give up smoking, um, they might not be so tuned into the fact that a part of them actually still really wants to smoke and still really likes it. And, mm. and it's the way they kind of relax. And when they're in social situations, it's what they do and, and all their friends smoke. So, so having them kind of look at both of those conflicting goals at the same time and then finding the place behind that or above that where where there are more important um, values and goals that are able to sort of reorganise or reshape the goals at the... Or inform the next step. Or inform, yeah, inform's a good word, absolutely. That's amazing. Like it really sounds very interesting and, and sort of as we get to the end we might be able to share some of some links if the TAP listeners want to get some more information. But I was wondering if you could tell me what have you learned about people through your experiences um, as a professor or clinical psychologist and your work in rural and remote areas? What, what are some of the really um, important things you feel that you've learned about other people? Hmm. Okay, thanks. I, I guess... I guess one of the things that I've learned is that, that control really is um, ubiquitous. You know, that, that whether we're talking about very young babies or very old people or people from other cultures, this sense of being able to, to live the life you want to live or be the person you want to be is really, is really a, a very common, common theme. And, and even though, um, say, a baby, for example, might not be able to communicate who they want to be in the life they want to live, they, they can still communicate very clearly when, when things aren't right for them, when, when they're not as fed as they want to be or when they're too wet or when they're not being cuddled enough. So for me, the, this sense of control um, and, and coming out to Alice Springs has, has taught me that it, it even applies cross-culturally. You know, for, for many Aboriginal people, control is an extremely important part of of them being able to find solutions to their problems and live the lives that they want to live. Um, and often by, by stepping in and, and kind of helping them with that or deciding what the solutions would be, rather than enabling them to have more control in their life, we actually do just the opposite. So, so for me, the, the control theme, I guess, is, um, is very important. And, and I guess that people... Um, fundamentally want want similar things you know they yes. they might want them to a lesser or greater degree but but we're all 
we're all kind of the same species. We're all built the same. Um, similar things are in, are important to us, I think, underneath it all. Um, Definitely. So what about you? What have you learned about yourself through all this work? Uh, um, well, I guess I've learned just like like all the people I've I've worked with that I'm that I'm just like um, everyone else that that control is is important to me. I've I've learned how lucky I am. You know that working with um, with people in a in a clinical setting, um, often people talk about experiences, and I'll think, holy cow, that that could have happened to me, or you know, oh, I those those things kind of sort of happened to me as well, but. But I, w I was lucky enough to grow up in a in a decent family, and I had a good education, and I've had great friends and and lots of support. So you know, it's just often just the way the dice rolls on on one or two significant events in in someone's life can really send you down a, a very different path. So I'm I'm extremely lucky, I think, to be to be in the position I'm in and to have the opportunities. I, I have um, opportunities to do things like this even, you know, to, um, to be able to, to talk to other people about, about these ideas. Um, I've learned that those sorts of things are, are important to me, helping people, um, helping people being, be able to live the sort of life they want to live. Um, I, I discovered the other day, since getting into this role, I've been offered the opportunity to, to go on a leadership course. and I. I've discovered that there's a style of leadership called servant leadership and that really appeals to me that this idea of being a leader actually um, gives you the opportunity to help people um, become more of the people they want to become rather than being a leader meaning that other people are going to do what you want them to do. So, so that's, I, I guess I didn't know that that was such an important thing to me before, um, before coming into this role but, but those sorts of things are um, yeah, are, are important to me. Um, I like that. I like the sound of that, that servant leadership. That sounds, yeah, very interesting. I think I, I might have to write that one down and Google yeah, that one. it's a fascinating <laughs> concept, yeah. Um, so if people um, want to know more about how you keep yourself balanced with all these amazing roles that you have, what, what would you tell them? How do you keep yourself grounded or focused? I guess being really clear about what's important to you. Um <clears throat> Since since being in this new role, I, I travel a lot, um, and that's that's helped emphasise to me how important family is to me. So so being able to spend time with with my wife and son and um, hang out with them is, is really important. Um, I think the idea of just just having balance, making making sure that you're every day doing some of the things that even if it's just a little bit, some of the things that you like to do. So. So, for example, I, I like exercising, and I I don't get to um, to run or play tennis or squash as much as I'd like to anymore. But I've I've got a treadmill desk now, so I can I can walk while I'm emailing and and so on. Um, I also like I've discovered that one of the things I love doing is is writing. So I make sure that I that I have time to do that. So again, I I don't think I have anything very profound to offer, but but just um, Making sure that that you're able to do some of the things that that you like doing, and if you're not doing that, looking at the, what's what's keeping you from from doing that, and and often it's been really helpful for me to think about um, 
when I am feeling stressed or worked up to, to go back to this idea of kind of conflict and competing goals. And, and often that's enough to kind of, you know, help me step back and, and sort of look at things differently. So, so that's been really useful as well. Yes, and and I think underestimating hobbies and interests is is a big mistake. You know, having that thing that we go to that makes us feel like ourselves or recharges mm. us or gives us that escape, I think, is absolutely essential for everybody. And so, if you don't have a hobby out there, I think that you need to find one. And Definitely. it doesn't have to be expensive. You know, learn to crochet, bake, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, just having that that time for yourself and and being able to do something that energizes you. Mm-hmm. So. I'm sure people listening today would have found this absolutely fascinating. So how, Tim, can they find out more about you or some of the the information that you've talked about today? Yeah, sure. Um, if they if they Google me, I'm I'm at Flinders University, so so they'd be able to to find me there. I the the name of the therapy that I've developed is the method of levels and and it has its own website now, which is www.methodoflevels.com.au. Um, I also, as I mentioned, I write a blog on psychology today, so they'd be able to to locate me there. Um, I also write for Mad in America, which is another website that that people would be able to read some of my some of my ideas. Wow, you are everywhere, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. Tim, and I hope that you have found today's information valuable as well. Don't forget to support the show by telling your friends, or you can go to our Facebook page, Carrie Thompson Casey, that's Thompson without a P, and like us there and give us your feedback. You can also subscribe to the show in iTunes, and please don't forget to go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating if you enjoyed today's show. For more information and information about events, please visit CarrieThompsonCasey.com. Thank you for joining me and see you on the next episode of The Abnormal Psychologist where we share real people's stories and give you real ideas so that you can realise your potential. Take care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.